Hello and welcome back to the Leaders in EDI podcast. I'm your producer, Jade Amies. And I'm Giovanna Dega. This is where we shine a light on the progress being made and the challenges being faced in the equity, diversity and inclusion space in sport. Now, we've historically focused a lot on sport, but this season we have been opening up to learn from other industries. And this is our big season finale. So, Jav, who have we got for this episode? Um, Joining us for this episode is Joanna Abayi, um, MBE to be exact, who is formerly... I think you mean Dr. Joanna, actually. Yes, you are correct. (laughs) Dr. Joanna Abayi. While we're listing all of our, like, achievements and titles. Let me go on. Yeah. Um, So... MBE received in 2020 for her services to creative diversity in the industry. She's also formerly head of creative diversity at the BBC, also commissioner of the Civil Service Commission, which um, the episode goes into detail what that role actually entails and is about. And on top of that, she also presents a really unique perspective also on her recruitment and talent agency, which is obviously um, Blue Moon. So um, it is a really interesting deep dive into the world of EDI from the lens of the creative field, understanding the process behind that. Example being, we sit there and watch a show that would have been commissioned by the BBC on our BBC One, BBC Two, Three, BBC Sounds, whatever channel it is across the platform. But Joanna breaks down the meticulous process which goes into actually vetting, solidifying and approving that from an EDI standpoint. And it was honestly like so enlightening to to find out how that all comes together I mean it was super wide-ranging and again we focused on the creative diversity bit because with Blue Moon she works in well with a bunch of different sectors including creative um her former title at the BBC and also her role as co-secretariat at creative diversity APPG so that's where we focused but it touched on a few other things right it touched on diversity more kind of broadly it's pretty widely applicable oh 100% and what she's done so well is obviously through her, her background and family, which obviously has former professional athletes involved, she was able to make a lot of valid comparisons between the world of sport and obviously the, the creative industry and the lessons which could be learned from a sporting perspective, but also equally some of the challenges that the creative world is still facing when it comes to talent pipeline, when it comes to social economic barriers which are, are facing that field as well. So um, yeah, she literally touched upon the whole breadth of EDNI. Perfect. So we don't want to keep you from the episode any longer. Let's talk to Joanna Abay. Joanna, thank you for, for joining us today. So we're on season two of the Leaders in EDI podcast. And season two is an interesting one because we're looking out of our traditional landscape of sport business and the concept of EDI in that space. But this season is effectively seen us speaking to individuals who are working predominantly outside of sport. So we have yourself who best put, I would say, operates in the creative industry. Would I be right in saying that? Mm-hmm. And again, just to reel off your background, I know that will get more of an yourself. Um, you have numerous board and trustee roles, commissioner and a, part, a commissioner of the Civil Service Commission, um, awarded a MBE in 2020, and then formerly the BBC's head of creative diversity. So, I have started every episode of this season with what I refer to as a cultural introduction. So, I effectively would love you to strip away the job title, strip away the various other positions you have, and who is Joanna Abayi? 
<laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I was not prepared for that. <laughs> Who am I? That's a very big question. Personally, things I love are horse riding, animals, my like my my little family that I have, like my partner and um, his son, and also like my family and friends are obviously a big part of my life. And then the big priority for me really is making things fair. That's a thing that mm. bothers me. That's a big part of my personality, and that, I think that comes through in lots of aspects of it. So many of the roles that I've taken up in my life have been ones where I've been trying to level the playing field in whichever space that is, whether that's the legal space or financial services or creative industries, as you referenced earlier, or in public service through my role as commissioner or certainly when I was in my role as head of creative diversity at the BBC or in my role as a counsellor. It will all be about trying to level the playing field for people. So I think if... I wouldn't really be able to describe me without explaining that's a big part of my personality because mm. the business I built was based on things not being fair. So it's a big part of like who I am. It doesn't really feel like I have a job. It feels like I'm being myself. <laughs> and I, I think <laughs> everywhere I go. I always, I always refer to it as when you can have two P's which align, which is a passion and a purpose. You, yeah. go, you go into each day feeling like I'm just being me. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't do everything I do is like all the work I do is very much a big part of my personality and the things I care about. So, definitely as an individual, I say you wear multiple hats yes. for the saying, and one of those hats happens to be your work with the civil service. Yes, um, I asked you how did you manage to park in central London today? <laughs> <laughs> you told me how. Please, um, one of those hats being civil service, if you could tell us a bit about the work you do in that space and how you kind of fell into that lane. Yeah, sure. So um, so there's four hats that I wear at the moment. The main one, and the one I've sort of been driving for a long, long time, is um, my company. So um, it was Shine Media. So I've had three companies. One was Shine Media, one was Hyden. And the most recent, which I've had for probably the last five years, is Blue, um, Blue Moon and Partners. Mm-hmm. So that's one hat. Um, and that takes up the majority of my time. Then I'm a civil service commissioner which you've just spoken about. And then I'm a City of London councillor, which takes another role. And then I'm also with, alongside my colleague Alex, the co-secretariat for the Diversity APPG. So there's four hats. <laughs> I'm just giving you that so that you've got the context of how I fit this in. Yeah, okay. So the Civil Service Commissioner role came as a result of the work that I was doing um, in my company, which at the time was when I was running Hyden. We had come in um, to the Civil Service to take part in the commissioner's sort of internal away day. And we were talking, I say we, I was talking specifically about um, inclusion when hiring at an executive level. So very senior people in the civil service. Um, And I didn't know much about the commissioners at all or the role of the commission, but I was brought in and had this sort of brief to come come in and and run this away day. And then when I got there and I realised in more detail as you do you know you have a big in-depth briefing but when Mm -hmm. you hear people talking about the work they do you learn it a lot a lot faster I realized that that was a a role that I thought was a really important role because ultimately the commission regulates the civil service in insofar as it looks at complaints that come in to the civil service and also around appointments and also the appointments of um senior civil servants so director level right up to to perm secretary so they're important roles they're roles that form policy they're roles that influence the country essentially yeah 
they are um, a friend of mine called them like the, the architects of society because you're covering everything from the office for intellectual property to like the ministry of defense to education, education to yeah so that for me when i realized that they were instrumental in ensuring that the recruitment process for people that go into those roles direct to level and above was open fair and based on merit um obviously which is what i'm all about <laughs> yeah. um i was like well that's fantastic because there's something that reassures you that those people that are in positions where they get to make decisions that impact a lot of influence a lot of people that you, as commissioners you can feel that the process in which they went through to achieve that role to gain that seat if you like that position was one that was fair that was open was based on merit and isn't about who you know yeah um which as we know in life um happens a lot all, all, in, all industries yeah the falls into that lane and how are you finding that um that role today um i think it's incredibly rewarding mm -hmm. i think it's a vital role actually I think that what I've loved about my time in the last year while getting my head around um, the role itself and understanding how the commission, sorry, how the civil service works, because I'm from the private sector, so understanding grades, jargon, abbreviation, all of that, once you kind of get your head around that and, and what things mean and why things happen in a particular way, once you've kind of absorbed some of that and you're, you're forever the student as well, as yeah, much as you're- learning. Yeah, so for as much as you're kind of, you're using your expertise to lead in the right way and to chair, because the role of the commissioner is that we chair those, what they call competitions, which is ultimately a recruitment process. So we chair that, that recruitment process to make sure that it's fair right up to interviews and an offer. And so, that I found incredibly um, interesting learning how it's been done, mm -hmm. the progress they've made, the developments they've made to the way that we recruit. And that, you know, that idea of like being merit, based on merit, being fair, being open, you can constantly improve that to ensure that you're getting fairer and fairer and fairer, based more and more and more on merit. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So you kind of, even though that's your value, pro your value position, doesn't mean the work stops there. Things change, society changes, things move on. Oh, of course. Like nuances come into roles and you have to still ensure that those things stay absolutely central to it. So it's been like a huge um, learning curve, understanding how that, how you make sure that happens in that world. I love that. And one thing I've definitely taken away from that is the hat, wonderful hats that you do wear, how they all speak to each other in, in different lanes yeah, they, so as yeah. you take one off and put one down it's like it's still game time with regards to yeah. what your core ethics and what you believe mm -hmm. in and it's a perfect segue to obviously your founder and MD of, of Blue Moon who are a who specialise in diversity and inclusion in executive recruitment just before we kind of like unpack what Blue Moon is to you and effectively the work you're doing there how do you define creative diversity uh, as a term because uh, obviously we are aware of so many different realms of diversity but creative diversity can literally creatively take your mind to so many different places yeah how, how do you kind of like draw it to center so with uh, within blue moon our focus is on equity inclusion accessibility diversity yeah. across all sectors okay so um the creative diversity role that um i hold within what well, held sorry at the bbc creative diversity in the kind of if you like the world of the BBC mm -hmm. means content. Okay. 
content ultimately is made up of, well, internally is made up of the commissioners and, and any internal producers essentially that you might have. So ultimately, when we're talking about creative diversity at the BBC, we're talking about content commissioning output across radio, television and digital products. So anything that our audiences are engaging with, whether it's what they're listening to, watching or engaging with via the apps, it's about the create the content ultimately. Um, you know when, that definition to the T. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas the the work that I do more broadly in Blue Moon, which could be for the BBC, or it could be for a Magic Circle law firm, or it could be for a tech company, um, or a pharmaceutical company, for example. What we're doing often is understanding. Well, it's two things typically. We are doing an audit of an organisation, right from attraction through to development and progression, to ensure that they have dismantled any processes or systems that have the inequities in to ensure that you've got the level playing field, whether it's through the way that you attract or through the way that you promote. So that is a big audit piece. That's a hefty piece of work. Then you've got cultural transformation, which is trying to ensure that the culture within that organisation is one in which is inclusive, is accessible, is equitable for everybody. We do all of that because if you want to then place... The other service that we have, which is um, executive search, if you then want to place a very senior, experienced leaders into those organisations and they might be joining an organisation in which they are the minority based on their disability, for example, or their gender or their ethnicity or their class or their faith, for example... You need to also make sure that you're not just finding a really brilliant person to go and work in an organisation, but that that organisation knows how to respect and value uh, the expertise that that individual brings into the organisation for its expertise and not um, rely on them to solely be, you know, the voice of all Jewish people or the voice of all disabled people. Yeah. You know, so it's you have to make sure it's an environment in which the expert feels like they can be valued for the expertise um, and that's not always aligned. In creative diversity at the Beeb, yeah, you're wanting to make sure ultimately that, well, the business model at the BBC, let's just be really frank, is they sell a licence fee and you pay a licence fee to watch programmes on television yeah. or on your iPlayer and to listen to the radio um, and to listen to sounds, BBC sounds. So ultimately, right now we're in a we're in a space where you've got Amazon, Netflix, Apple, all these streaming platforms. Now, like, I'm trying to think of all those different streaming platforms that you never come up with. <laughs> yeah, Hulu. All of those. Hulu. Hulu. <laughs> like, hey, you. All of these things. So ultimately, what you're wanting to ensure is that you're bringing high impact, um, high quality, authentic representation of programs that speak to as large an audience as possible that when they're thinking about do I want to pay my license fee or do I want to pay x amount to Amazon that 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 you're the you know the BBC is the channel of choice and so that content is about ensuring that wherever you are in the UK because it's across the UK the, the license you feel that you're getting value from spending that money ultimately so it's slightly different that well it's not different in that every business has a customer that they want to drive value to of course. or solve a problem for. Yeah. The BBC's is just the customer being 
an audience that wants to be entertained, informed or educated. The, um, you know, someone from who's a customer of mine may want to find absolutely the best talent for their organisation and have a culture where the best talent do really well so they keep driving their profits up. We've got, we've got different, you know what I mean? We're selling something to solve a problem or add value and that's mm-hmm. ultimately, it's just slightly different what the problem is and what you're solving. No, so uh, I think we're going to be changing hats quite, quite frequently. <laughs> it, it is what I go Yeah. So keeping the creative diversity hat on, yeah. um, at Beebs, short for Beebs, is that internal BBC? Yeah, we call it the Beeb. Okay, you can call the it Beeb. the Beeb, okay. don't worry, Jack. Oh, my mother's like using the Beeb. <laughs> when we have like the production teams, talent, um, producers, how, well, how did your role per se allow you to ensure that these various functions spoke to each other to have parity as an outcome? Because that's really, like a mammoth task. It is. It's huge. It, it, it's, it was huge and it continues to be huge yeah. for these reasons. Um, first of all, we don't make our own programmes, largely a small proportion. It's independent production companies that do. And then the independent production companies crew up production staff uh, who are a whole community of fantastic freelancers. Okay. So you need to ensure that... So the, the role I have is a challenging one in that... Um, you need to hold the indies to a high um, expectation uh, because ultimately the indies, the independent independent production companies, are pitching to the broadcaster. To buy their show effectively. Yeah, um, a picture to the BBC to say, BBC, this is a programme we think your audiences are like, will like. The commissioners are deciding whether it is or not. Sometimes the commissioners might have some ideas for shows and might go to an indie and say, we really think this is a show that our audiences are, like, are looking for or wanting, for example. So that may happen. But you know largely it's the indies selling ideas and so we don't make the program so the bit that becomes challenging is we need to make sure though that when that pitch comes in that story is going to be authentic mm. it's going to be representative the impact of that representation is going to be reflective and accurate right because you could keep reflecting a particular identity and that could be authentic but if it's the only time that I see that identity, then that may start to be a negative impact. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So you have to also think about, you know, what is the impact of this representation and, and how varied is it? When I'm showing an Asian person, am I only showing them in one way? Because obviously if you think about each commissioner is getting a different idea, they're not necessarily checking over there what that commissioner is doing in that genre with their Asian character. Like, you know what I mean? There was that, the conversation's not happening because it's the indies that are making it. Yeah. So you have to just make sure that that's a priority. We want authentic, representative um, stories that are being told in a way that feels accurate to those sitting watching. Yeah, precisely. And, and the impact of that. That sounds... That, But we have to hold them to that. Yeah, because I was going to say... They like, have to do it. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, oh, so, yeah, yeah. So in the act of doing, how are they informed of what they are being almost... So for instance, if you now have a raft of different shows being pushed to yourselves, is there like a... I hate to make it sound so performative, but is it like a, a checklist to which you're now saying, does it have this, does it have this, does it have this, before we even look at it? Well, we don't... I wouldn't say it's a checklist, but there are um, requirements, expectations. So for example, at the moment... Um, but this will be reviewed. This was stuff that was um, I inherited, but there's mm-hmm. a new strategic plan coming out that I've done which has different <laughs> different asks yeah. um, but at the, at the moment the expectation is that um, the production team 
that make the programme. So that's the freelancers that you use. Um, 20, at least 20% of those, pro- those producers um, should be deaf, disabled, neurodivergent from an ethnic minority background or from a socioeconomically diverse background, at least 20%. Okay. Um, there is also an industry-wide, um, if you like, set of agreements, which is uh, under the TV Access Project, and it has five A's. And the other expectation is that you are making all of your processes around production accessible. So if I'm deaf, disabled, neurodivergent producer, I can make that program with all my access requirements met. You know, I'm not walking miles to find an accessible toilet. I'm not um, having to pretend that I don't have particular requirements in order to get the job. Actually, the industry should be ensuring that that's accessible because we want the best people to make programmes. Of course. And some of the best people will be deaf, disabled, neurodivergent, yeah. right? So so that's um, that's one of the things, for example. Another thing that they announced, um, which was over its three over a three-year period, was that um, they would have, they would spend a minimum of 112 million on, um, on content that met a criteria and of that criteria for example one was that you portrayed um as many identities really um on screen the portrayal was there and that could be across the nine protected characteristics um the other was that your production leadership so those that were producers that were the senior producers on a program were from deaf disabled, were sorry, were deaf disabled, neurodivergent, ethnic minority, or from socioeconomically diverse backgrounds, and also that the independent production company itself, their leadership, so their MD, their creative director, for example, was somebody who was deaf disabled, neurodivergent, and ethnic minority from a socioeconomic diverse background. So there's lots of different ways in which you can say, look, this is the expectation that we have of you where it became challenging and where I guess it's become a big part of the strategy that we now have going forward was holding people accountable for that and what's the consequence if you don't do that Um, because otherwise it can feel a bit like a wish but if I can't do anything if you don't do it then it's you know hope you're relying really on goodwill and uh, and people that are quite open-minded and inclusive and not everybody is and also in the world of television, it's quite cliquey, it's very coffee shop meetings. And it's also, if you get a commission green lit, which means the go ahead really quick and um, quite short notice, sometimes you need to start filming really quickly. So you crew up in such a speed, as in you go and get your production crew in such a speed that Jav, if they've worked with you five times over and you're reliable, they'll just call you. Yeah. Going down that inclusive route and putting out a call and making sure it's all fair is time that they may feel they don't have. So that's what I mean. It's like tricky because really you should be crewing up all year because you're going to get commissions, yeah, right? Of course, yeah. Or at least you're anticipating you're going to get commissions. Otherwise, you're not going to keep the lights on. Yeah. So really, you should constantly be looking for 25 Javans, like constantly, like over and over. Do you know what I mean? Rather than that's just... The work. Yeah. And with that work, hopefully we've done in the background, you obviously, as you said, holding to account obviously goes such a long way. And... I tend to always use the term that the same individuals in the same room will typically have a error of group thinking, which then allows them to convey that when you look at their lived experiences and they, they by default have unconscious biases, which comes into play. So for a lot of these, let's say, indies that now come to you, if they are projecting a particular narrative in a stereotypical way, 
which can hold some truth. How do how do you per se inform them to toe the line of it being harmful of how you're let's say positioning this black inner city youth mm. in a way which it perhaps representative representing life in London for that youth is in a, in a way which is both authentic but also not harmful. So um, so interestingly the so as the creative head of creative diversity I have a team work with a team and what we do is well when I was in the post what we would do and what I was implementing was that we were embedded into the commissioning teams so that meant that actually that constant education was happening all the time but that was so that we could empower the commissioners to the more education commissioners have about a myriad of experiences because remember any story could come to them about any matter of topics and they're not all going to have encyclopedic knowledge on every experience that could possibly come to them like someone talking about their experience in the north pole if you you may not know that right so there has to be a, a proactive and consistent approach to education for example and so what our roles were from the creative um from my perspective anyway when i was in that creative diversity team was that we were embedded into those commissioners sorry genres so across the commissioning team, it's then broken into genres. So you'd have scripted, which is like drama, comedy, unscripted, which is the docs, ents. Try to think of it now. I got it my head. Daytime, <laughs> yeah. for example. Um, and so what you, what the role was then of the creative diversity partners was to embed into those commissioning teams and support them constantly through education. Now, there's what a team. We're a team of about six, and there's hundreds of commissioners. So you're not going to be able to that small team isn't come on let's be honest going to be able to uh see everything sometimes it's over fifty six thousand hours of content so they're not going to get to see everything which is why you have to rely on the other things within the industry so you know bodies that exist to educate mm. the industry on anything to do with representation we need to make sure our commissioners know about that yeah so they need to there needs to be a strategy around their education you can't just expect one person to keep educating 50 people each week on when they could be looking at however like each commissioner could have x amount of shows so the the our role as creative diversity really was to embed into those teams ensure there was like a lot of education so that when challenges came up commissioners could just push back to indies and say we're not quite sure about this and we'd like to think about that but equally be able to say to the indie we're not quite sure about this what are you going to do to educate yourselves and that production team to make sure that you do give us a program that's reflective and authentic and representative so it's like that's what i mean by it's not a easy task because the show's being made by freelancers who i can't see or touch if you think about it they're well i can in real life but you know i mean there's there's thousands basically and then there's a load of indies that are then running those and then there's our commissioners so from our from my perspective i thought that the role of our team was to ensure that the freelancers were empowered and felt there was a role for them to m- make programmes, whether it was for radio or television, for the BBC, by the way they're treated when they work on BBC programmes, mm-hmm. and our language and communication, the way we treat them, and for the indies to feel that they could pitch ideas to the BBC, irrespective of their background, and then be considered and greenlit. That hasn't always worked. That hasn't always happened. So the strategy has to be about transparency, measurement, and accountability, or the, or the cycle continues. So as I say, I'm always about the dismantling yes seeing what's not working and i'll put it back when i think i've ironed out what that challenge is but i mean we talk about the bbc rages but the bbc is just an example of how yeah, it oh, manifests how yeah yeah and hey i've always been imploring two terms 
the marathon continues. Yeah. It's not a sprint. And secondly, it's about progress and not perfection, ultimately. Yeah. And um, and you have to care. I think you have to care. Yeah, you have to feel. Sometimes I think like, sometimes you just have to care. Yeah. And, and it can't feel like, um, I was talking to a client about this the other day, actually. It has to feel like it's about people and end user for want of a better phrase because <laughs> yeah. i hate things like service user end user like but i can't because there's so many industries that might be like listening yeah. i'm trying to think of a term that makes sense to everyone but audience yeah. whatever whoever your audience is customers but um it has to make sense like because i think sometimes where where it's going wrong is companies are seeing diversity equity and inclusion as initiatives that add-ons rather than a way of doing things. And I know that's not profound. Lots of people have been saying that for many years, including myself, but it still hasn't landed. No. It still hasn't landed. As, as, as much as you hear that in practice, people don't really know what that means. So like sometimes people don't even realize they're saying something. And I'm listening to it and thinking that is so indicative of how you think. And so even though you think you understand that this isn't about initiatives, your your words, your approach and your actions scream that you only understand it as an initiative. Do you know what I mean? So when I say that, people think that's not profound. I know it's not, but trust me, <laughs> be around long enough and you'll see what I mean. You speak to someone and they'll say something and you're like, you don't get it. You just don't get it. And it's, it's the work is to obviously allow them to get it yeah and it's not, you, the thing is you, it's not like you don't you, not everyone's going to get everything straight away I don't get everything straight away oh, do you know what I mean but it's like at least I admit when I don't get yeah. it so sometimes I just think just say you don't get it but there's so much fear now around this topic um, that now we've got people that would rather stay out of it yeah and I think when we now told that line of because board meeting let's not talk about our diversity and inclusion strategy it's like this grey cloud comes yeah, into yeah, the yeah, yeah. room and then everybody's like all tense and yeah. upright of like, what didn't you do? What didn't you do? Mm. And it's about... And then it makes you feel morally... Sorry yeah. to cut you, Jeff. Yeah. But it makes you then feel... Now you think it's like a a moral um, competition between who's more like decent or ethical. You know, like when it comes to what did you do? Did you get that bit yeah. done? Yeah. And then if you haven't done it, it's like, so you don't care then. Like, so you're ableist. But actually, the challenge in the first place is that the people strategy really is where your inclusion is. And to like point, equity, diversity, and inclusion is about people. It yeah. so should just be embedded in your people strategy. But people have a strategy and then they have one about um, Edie and I. But when it comes to people strategy, people are different. People need to be included. People need equity. People need access, accessibility. So it's like, I don't know how you've got a strategy over here. So what, the, the people over in that strategy, they don't need those things. <laughs> it just literally doesn't make it, sense. It makes no sense. And then when you continue sense. to walk the walk where I see you across the road, do you know where I'm going? I know you're going. It's like, we're both a bit lost. Mm. Should we maybe come together? Yeah, uh, And maybe exactly. try and help us get it quicker. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Asking to put another hat on, so um, yes. Joanna is actually changing her hat now. Just <laughs> yeah. visual blue, blue moon. Yes, uh, love the name by the way. Oh, thanks. You know who did that? I should give him a little shout out. Mac and Moore. 
Okay. They're a, a, an agency um, who spent some time getting to know me and they came up with our brand name. I was going to ask you just to, as, a, as a general starting point, what does the, the day-to-day of, a M, of the MD of a Blue Moon look like? <laughs> um, so it, um, it varies. So sometimes it's, well, it varies. It can be a combination of meeting clients and understanding the challenges and then coming up with them collaboratively on a solution that will address their challenges, not just for an immediate win, but long-term um, sustainable gain um, and success. So to make sure that basically they don't need to call me back because I've I've, I've done my job. Done my job. I've, I've, um, don't hear from me ever again. Yeah, well, <laughs> to be fair, like they can win another sort of challenge. Comes, oh, but of hopefully course. you've embedded the right value set and the right understanding and, and processes. Yeah, that, that, that if they are getting in touch with you, it's because something needs to be tweaked about that plan because of various nuances or, yeah, or they just want general sort of support. But hopefully, hopefully we're not, um, or, or, we're, or we're having to develop because something is changing and progressing. But hopefully we've done what was needed at that time to get them through to the like the next time that they might need us. But the point is that they hopefully don't need to rely on us because it becomes a way of them doing things, the way they do things. Um, other times it's actually going to run training. I call it education. Yeah. Uh, which education could be a, and action. I yeah. Know, I love to put the two together. Yeah, education um, with, with businesses. And that could be from everything from understanding microaggressions and allyship, all the kind of terms that we hear loads now, mm-hmm. um, through to just understanding people. The buzzwords. Yeah, through to like understanding people and creating an environment where we've leveled the playing field ultimately. And a key message I'm always trying to land. Um, Please share it. That I think not everybody understands sometimes. And it's where we get some frustrations and you get some pushback is equity is giving each individual what they need to be successful. And in my opinion, that equality of like when it gets to fairness, we can't really get to equality unless we know what would make it fair for the individuals. So you need the equity before you do that. But what that does not mean, equity is not taking from one person and then giving it to another. It is just ensuring that Joanna has what Joanna needs to compete for something, um, for the same opportunity as Jovan has. And Jovan has what he needs, yeah. specifically to his needs, to compete for the same opportunity. So then whoever gets it has has got it on merit because there weren't barriers that made it difficult for Javan to get past the first part of that process because we knocked those down so that the playing field was level. Then it was just, it's on. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, there, there we go. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that, uh, sometimes I think that we we people can get nervous because they think what we're saying is we're going to take from somebody who we are, who who has a privilege in one particular area and or, or is privileged in many areas. We're going to take from you because you're privileged and we're going to give it to the underprivileged. They're not underprivileged individuals. They're not disadvantaged. That drives me crazy. They're not disadvantaged. They're not underprivileged. They're just, they have the different, they've started in a different place. Mm-hmm. And of course that has created barriers, but they as a person are still talented. They're still brilliant. And so while I understand that language you're explaining, there's been disadvantages that they've had to overcome or there's been privileges they've been um, absent, have been absent for them. But we've got to be careful with that language because we need to make that about the process and the external, not the person. Because otherwise what can happen is this underprivileged person comes into the workplace and they're expected to be grateful for the rest of their life when they're in the workplace because you 
privileged gave this underprivileged person a chance when no 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 the systems made them underprivileged yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? so it's like it's a bit of a well not all the systems in some instances of course it won't just be systems it'll be lots yeah. of circumstantial things but generally what we're saying in the workplace is um we're not trying to, we're trying to make sure that there is there, that isn't happening that we yeah. haven't got someone with one privilege over another we're trying to as so, insofar as we can, obviously we can't control people people's lives before they've got to us. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, effectively, and where they start uh, and stuff. Uh, as you started, you're trying to make it fair. Yeah, just trying <laughs> to make it fair. Simply put, that's that it. Yeah. What, what, what would you say? Because I definitely want us to move into two key areas, which are times always against us in every part. I feel like we need a part one, two, three, and four for this conversation. <laughs> but I definitely want to talk to metrics and yes. data and how we measure and numbers don't lie mm. and definitely look at some of the contrasts which I hope listeners who predominantly will be operating in the sports industry can definitely look to take from of what lessons from your world can actually be implemented in their world mm. like what's the common trends of challenge right now for you as Blue Moon for instance that you, you're, you're facing as I want to seek counsel with my peers to understand how we can overcome this what are some of the things that keep you up at night yeah I think around the data um, I think multiple industries sometimes use um, external bodies hmm. that are collecting data and it's an ineffective way of collecting data. Why it's is an that? ineffective process. It relies on, sometimes this data will rely on, um, so you know quite often, you've, we, we all experience it, you know, we, we log on to something and it will say, will you take this questionnaire for us on whatever it might be. So sometimes in some industries, you'll get that questionnaire. So the questionnaire might be about diversity and the questionnaire will be saying that it's important for us to know who makes up the finance sector, for example. But sometimes the timing of when they send those those um, um, questionnaires is so impractical that the... Um, What's the word? Fill out rate. I can't think of what the word is. Completion, Completion rate. rate. There you go. There we go. Is so sl- so slim that the data doesn't really tell us much. It tells us that of the people that filled that out, which in the grand scheme of the entire industry is about 5%. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? So sometimes yeah. it's like the process in which we're trying to even gain, gather that information is ineffective. The communication around why we need it. Like... It is got to the point where that language around like ticking a box, diversity higher, like that has happened so much that that language is so common now that even when you say to someone you fill out an application form and for example for a role, as I'm sure you'll see, like and they say, could you fill out our diversity questionnaire? And it's annoying because people look at that and kind of go, why? Is that going to make me the diversity higher or is that going to disadvantage me? And that's largely because we haven't communicated things yeah. in the right way. So some of it's ineffective. I also think... um you can make data say a lot of things you want it to say. Oh, you can manipulate it as yeah. much as you please. So, like, I've often obviously had to sort of um, look at data um, in all of the roles I've had. Uh, and certainly when I'm wanting to hold people accountable, because in many of the roles I'm, I'm in, I'm holding people accountable. Um, and certainly as, an, as a consultant, I might ask to see data about employee populations so I can understand where we are today and where they're maybe trying to get to. The data can tell you a lot. Sometimes data can even tell you that people aren't aren't telling you stuff. And that doesn't sound profound either. But what I mean is there was one company for, that I did some work with and we were looking at their population data. And they said that largely they were an atheist organisation. 
Okay. And then, and the, you know, faith, faith didn't like play a prominent sort of part in their culture or didn't seem to come up as something that was discussed much or particularly prevalent for people that work within that organisation. And then when I looked at the data around their ethnicity and their ethnic backgrounds, it was challenging to see that there were such a variety of ethnicities and yet none of those ethnicities, some of which um, where their ethnicity and faith are so interlinked Mm -hmm. that it actually tells you quite a lot. In fact, what it told me, because then I then went and did, I I had an inkling about what it may have been telling me and I didn't want to play to... A, ste- a stereotype, if you like. Of- CID on. Yeah, so I put on yeah, I put on my I put on my CID hat. And then I um I basically ran a load of uh focus groups, listening groups. Okay. To ask about faith. And ultimately there were so many religions within this organization, but it didn't feel like the place or a culture where people could talk about or actively live their faith religion in that workplace so when it came to ticking that on any diversity form they just said non like you know atheist but that wasn't the truth that was i don't need the hassle perhaps and you know that came out of the listening groups that comes with me admitting this i don't want the microaggressions that come with me discussing or or or, and what's the word sort of practicing my faith if you like day to day so it can that's what i mean by it can tell you a lot and it can also like tell you not the truth so you just have to be like, you have to be really um, investigative and not just take the data at face value and also think about the nuances of why the data looks like that. Because what I found certainly in the creative industries is the data can look brilliant, but unless you know the criteria for that data, some of it's absolutely, I kid you not, some of it means nothing. It actually means nothing. It doesn't mean there's been any improvement. It may tell you, like it may tell you something, but it doesn't mean much in the um, in terms of progression around equity, diversity, inclusion. It actually some of that data tells you we've not moved at all. Yeah. When I say it tells you nothing, not. I mean it. It just tells you we haven't moved. It doesn't necessarily even give you um, the areas that we now need to focus on. Whereas at least with some data, you can work out where the gaps are. Yeah. Effectively, and it's interesting because when you make mention to that. I straight away go to how data is used in the world of sport mm. and we're consistently told and shown that using the world of football for example that we have almost 50% of the players in the Premier League are from an ethnically diverse background but when you now convey that to the level of managers and those in coaching roles in the world of football mm. it's a complete disparity in relation to the amount of players in the system who then go on to coach when we, for instance, look at the position of women in the creative industry and we look at faith, we look at identity, sexual orientation and things of that nature, how do you feel the creative industry is performing in those measures and is there any lessons the world of sport can take from that? Um, I think at the moment, so I think um, the creative industries are failing ethnic minorities quite big, okay, in quite a big way, um, especially free, um, I think class, Mm. is um, a really, really tough one um, in the creative industry. The freelancers, you know, during COVID, they've got nothing. Like, that's it. Completely, com- like, completely exposed. 
financially. Um, my mind goes straight to Hollywood now and on what I'm seeing over there with the whole strikes with the writers and so forth as well. Yeah, it's not, it's um, class and um, ethnicity. Disability is equally, if I'm honest, um, yeah. Jack Thorne did a, a, a lecture at Edinburgh and he said that the, t- the TV industry failed disabled people and I think he's quite right. But as a result of him saying that and standing up and really putting himself in quite a compromising position, um, the TV Access Project has come out of that. And so what I would say is that we have seen an increase in disabled, deaf and neurodivergent off-screen talent and on-screen talent within telly specifically. But the problem goes wider in the creative industries. Um, So while that number is increasing and we are headed in the right direction, for the creative industries, if if you are in any of the... So if you're wealthy um, and could afford to do a lot of things for free to begin with even though now we do less of that but um it's still a part of it no matter what they, that it's still a there's still a, an element of it because little things like for example so i can actually get my point out for example <laughs> um when you work in telly even as a runner people would like you to have an, a driving license but if you're from a, a home where your in, the income is quite um low people don't have the luxury of doing the driving lessons in the first place much less getting a car yeah do you know what i mean to drive around in and you can't just rent one because you have to have a license for a little period for a period of time before you can rent. Do you see what I mean? Of so, course, I so that, what you're earning to now go yeah, rent a car. Exactly, out. It's so kind of exactly, <laughs> precisely. And then, and then it's little things like you know people can sometimes um, reimburse your travel. Some people don't have the money in the first place for the travel. Some people think I left them a call, a, you know, a voicemail. They haven't called me back. They might not have credit. Yeah. Like, and I know that we sometimes you can your you yourself move into a different um, financial space and you don't even think about credit anymore. Because maybe you've got a, a a line rental or whatever you you know, but some, for some people that's very that's very much the case. They don't have a smartphone, like that's not affordable. So, you know, get your lunch back reimbursed. Some people are going to the food bank. What are you talking about reimbursing them for their food? Like, yeah, do, do you know what I mean? Some people don't have that. So, what I mean is that with class, like we're failing people so much when it comes to that. And then if you think about if you have a disability. Um, if you do have access requirements, some of that requires funding. So if you are from a, a low-income home and you have a disability, you've got that additional challenge. You know what I mean? So there's like, and then the ethnic minorities, like honestly, like you can just look at the industry data. It goes, it decreases year on year, like in terms of them making programs for the for the broadcasting industry. And if I look at the wider research that we've done around, you know, with the all-party parliamentary group around creative diversity, class ethnicity disability they're all um, and, and gender plays a plays a, a part but slightly differently um like women in film and women in television can have a really hard time especially when it comes to flexible working and children and you yeah know, that sort of thing so it's i mean I could, the list goes on and on and on uh, for the inequities uh, yeah. but when you say like what could the sport industry um sort of learn from that i'd say the TV Access Project is an example of how the whole industry, in terms of the whole broadcasting industry, because it's many streamers, so the Amazons, um, the Netflix, the Viacoms, uh, Paramount, um, BBC, Warner. Channel 4, ITV, Warner, yeah. all of them. They, they um, have all come together to say that they will follow the five A's, which talk, and the five A's are basically five behaviours and things to do to ensure that you're accessible. So like, I do personally think that especially in like football and athletics, 
my brother being like a former athlete, I think that there are um, there is so much opportunity for them to cover come together more collaboratively and do something. I think what we do see a lot of in the creative and sports industries is performative. It, mm. it sounds like you care, but do you care? And then also, I think this. St- I think what they do sometimes is they, especially in sport, I think they they make the 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 sports person accountable rather than its industry. Does that make sense? So rather than the industry setting the agenda for racism and being by being anti-racist in their processes, their their penalties, their accountability, their metrics, they want they want players to make a stand on the pitch but the players are not the one like they can they have an influence and they yeah. can send a message out but that industry is built on those at the top hiring the best players right so it's almost like yes they can do that but you really know like you sitting up there like running these you know leagues and organizations like you and football associations you know what you need to do and if you all came together and said we're absolutely going to be anti-ableism anti like transphobia, anti-homophobia, all of those things. We're gonna, and what I mean by anti is, like, we're gonna do the behaviours that are anti anything that would be complicit in it. So it's one thing saying I'm not homophobic, and another thing doing things that stop and that are purposefully like ensuring that homophobia can't breed, can't happen. Right? So they could, they could all come together and do something about that. Uh, I think we've seen it time and time again with case after case after case, whether it's a a well publicized one or not and i sometimes feel like the the sports person is who they're expecting to take that on when they actually turn up to, to do a sport whereas you've turned up yeah. to run a, a, an association well, of course and hey f- for these players who are performing and entertaining in the same way this is a workplace of the office you wouldn't mm. expect someone to come and racially abuse you yeah. at, at, at your desk mm. or while you're sending an email but in the world of football and world of sport, you're exposed to thousands of fans filling the stadiums, coming in the name of the game and to support their club, while abusing someone on the basis of their skin. And that then transcends into the world of social media, which is a whole nother yeah. bag for us to speak to as well. And then and then what what it is, what we, which they still haven't realised is the biggest microaggression. If I talk about sort of football, when we've seen the, the racism that some of um, the black players have faced, and I know there's other racism, yeah. of course, but in terms of the example I'm giving, what then happens is the burden then falls on all the other black players to come together. To start educating everyone on racism. But they're in the trauma of the racism. Mm-hmm. They're experiencing the racism. You know, just because you didn't call me the N-word, right, it doesn't mean I don't... F- I'm, a, I'm, I'm exactly the... You know, I've got the same um, ethnic identity as that person. Oh, yeah, it could so have been I've ju- got the trauma, me. yeah. Like, I've still got the trauma of the fact that this racism is breeding and I have to deal with that constantly but now actually because it wasn't aimed at me that day right in terms of the, the word wasn't pointed in my direction but it is about me and people I love and you know the, the identity that I share with like everyone you know hundreds you kind of then get to, to a point where you then have to start educating so then you're like hold on a minute let me put aside the fact that I'm really traumatized and impacted by this and educate you on that on behalf of everybody else because one, I'm famous and I feel like I should mm-hmm. because I'm in a position of like a particular privilege, which is, let's be honest, the privilege is profile and money. Yeah. It's not, you know, I mean, they're not privileged in any other way because they're still being treated as less than. There you go. Right. So it's like, I don't know. I just think 
they've got it wrong. Like they, they turn up to be sports people. And that's what I was trying to say about earlier when I said with our executive search bit, it's people want to turn up and do their job. They don't, they don't want to turn up and fight these fights. The organisation, if you want the best people to come, you need to make it safe for those people. So whether you are running FIFA or, you know, I don't know enough about football, but no, I'm you, sure there's someone you, that runs FIFA. Here. Yeah, um, there and, is. You know, or if you're someone that's, you know, running cricket or whatever, you need to be making sure that they're safe places for any brilliant person to come to work. And it's the same if you were McDonald's or if you were you know, rugby, head of rugby or whatever. It's the same thing. How do we make sure the best people want to work here and feel safe? And what it shouldn't be is when something goes wrong, we're never to be seen, no one knows who we are. And then everyone that identifies with who you've just attacked has to now come together and solve the problem. That's not what they should have been doing. Actually, what they need is pastoral support Mm -hmm. around the fact that they've had to witness it. We still haven't, we're still in a time when that hasn't, I don't even think people even think about that. Do they even think about that? Do they even think about that? Like, you know, like how many yeah. times has Rio had to, Rio Ferdinand had to post something about this? Like... Or eat Uncle Ian Wright as well. Yeah, Ian Wright. Or like, how many times? Like, I've just thought of Rio because I, I remembered when other stuff happened and he was having to say, but why should he have, why should it be him? Yeah. It should, it, you know, the anti-racism should be coming from those that have the power to, to do something. The structures and systems. Yeah, to the systems and the structures. Joanna? I want to thank you so so much for your time today. But, um, <laughs> no, thank you for having me. It's been it's been fantastic. It's been a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this episode and this season of the Leaders in EDI podcast. Thank you all for listening and to our guest Joanna Abayi. We also want to thank our diversity series partners, Prime Video, IMG, Adidas, and Delta Trade for helping us to bring to you the Leaders in EDI podcast. If you have any thoughts or feedback, or would like to get involved with our diversity series, please reach out on LinkedIn or via email at jade.amys@leadersinsport.com or javan.odega@leadersinsport.com. Till next time.